As we come to our text this morning in Acts chapter 27, we're going to begin at verse 27 in the chapter. And we've been following the experiences of the Apostle Paul as he's making his way towards Rome. Paul was this great preacher and evangelist and church planter of the first century. And God had a special call on his life to preach before kings and rulers and high officials. And now God was going to send him to the greatest ruler in the world at that time, Caesar, who ruled in Rome. And so Paul's on his way to Rome to be able to speak to Caesar. But on his way, there's a tremendous storm that happens to the ship. And we talked about this last week. I recommend you go online or get the CD, whatever it is. But we went over that last week. This amazing storm that came and drove them, they knew not where, into the Mediterranean Sea. And they were under great threat of death. Matter of fact, it says in verse 20 of Acts chapter 27 that they gave up all hope. They thought they were going to die. They took all the measures they could. They threw over much of the cargo, the equipment. They brought down the sails. They let the ship drive. They did everything they could think to do. But still, it seemed that the ship was headed for certain disaster. Now, we'll get into verse 27 in just a moment. But, you know, it's not hard to relate this to our own lives. I think there's very probably very few people in this room who've actually been in such a two-week, stormy ship crisis where it looked like you were going to be a shipwreck and die everybody on board but you have your own sort of story of a storm in your life i don't think we're pushing the metaphorical envelope when we say we can relate to these times when you're just driven without any guidance you you feel like you have no hand on the rudder your life feels out of control you're just being driven by circumstances or events or whatever it is in your life and you're just you're just helpless And sometimes feeling, at least in some measure, hopeless. Well, in the midst of that situation, the Apostle Paul stood up and he spoke to the 275 other passengers on that ship. And he told them something. He said, I want you to take heart, men. Because God will deliver every one of our lives. This is what God spoke to me. Now, continuing on, we see the story as it continues here at verse 27. He says, now when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea... About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And so they took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So can you just put yourself mentally on this ship? For two weeks, 14 days, they've been on an incredibly stormy ride. The wind hasn't abated. The waves haven't backed down. They've been driven blind in the storm for two weeks. They had no idea where they were. They had no idea where they were going. And now they're coming towards land and they're thinking, what you would be thinking in a similar situation, shipwreck. It's time for the ship to crash upon some rocks and we'll all be killed. This was the moment they were waiting for in terror. So they hear it off into the distance. Who knows that the 14th night had come. They they, they spent two weeks in that misery. But then the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Maybe they heard the waves crashing on the shore in the distance. We don't exactly know why. But then they dropped the four anchors from the stern and they prayed for the day to come. So you just see it as the ship's being driven across the Mediterranean Sea from east to west. What happens? All they can do now at verse 29 is they pray for day to come. You know, listen to threat of shipwreck 
the threat of death. That'll make you a man or a woman of prayer, won't it? There's an old saying, and it's not entirely true, but in principle it's true. There's no atheists in foxholes. In other words, when the time of attack comes, when the time of storm comes, when it's really difficult, when you're really under pressure, isn't it easy? Isn't it strange how easy it is for us to turn to God? And isn't this a lesson for us to take to heart for us? Don't wait for them to turn to God. I imagine there might be somebody here this morning, and you're here this morning because of some crisis in your life. And you sense, with this season of crisis, I need to draw near to God. I need to listen to His voice more than ever. I need to hear from now. I'm, I'm happy that you're here. And if crisis has driven you here this morning, I'm sorry about the crisis, but it's good that you're here. But you know, our doors are open when you're not having a crisis as well. But isn't it strange how at those moments people turned to prayer and they prayed that day would come, verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall. Do you understand what's going on here? They're getting near shore, and the crew of the ship says, Abandon ship, who cares about the passengers? Now, this isn't a very noble crew, is it? This is like crew one of those cruise ships, you know, that abandon <laughs> ship at the first sign of, a, of crisis or something. It's exactly the same kind of analogy. Things are going bad. It's good. We'll save ourselves. Forget about everybody else. So they start making the preparations to lower themselves down the skiff. And the Apostle Paul is watching. I don't know what he's doing. He's just walking the deck, strolling around, and he sees what they're doing. And he tells the soldiers, you know what? If these guys escape, none of us will be saved. Now, I don't know if Paul was speaking that as a spiritual principle. Maybe God had spoken to his heart that it's essential that as much as possible, the passengers and the crew stay together. Or maybe he was being eminently practical. Maybe he was simply saying, we need the expertise of the crew here in these critical moments. They can't leave or lives will be lost. He said this to the Roman centurion. And what did the Roman centurion do? Immediately the soldier said, great, we believe you, Paul. We're cutting loose the skiff. Now, before when Paul first offered his nautical advice, they didn't listen to him. Back at a place called Fair Havens, Paul said, I don't think we should sail on. And they said, well, whatever, preacher, we're going on. Then secondly, when Paul offered them some encouragement on the sea after his great I told you so moment, they started to listen to him. Now they'll believe anything Paul says about sailing that ship. You say they shouldn't go? Fine. We're cutting the ropes. They're gone. And so that's what they did. The ropes were cut. The soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff, and they let it fall off. It seems that the centurion and the soldiers had tremendous trust in Paul. Now verse 33. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying... Today is the 14th day you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is your survival since not a hair of your head will fall from, excuse me, not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Paul gathers together the passengers and now they're listening to him with a new authority, aren't they? And he tells them, 
eat something. Strengthen yourselves. I know you haven't felt like eating because of seasickness for the last two weeks. I know that the food is wet and moldy, but eat something. You need a little bit of strength. We're almost there. I know you're terrified because the ship is being broken up and it's a bad thing awaiting us as soon as the dawn comes. But you need to eat something. You need to take some strength. And this is what he did. He assured them, not a hair of your head will fall of any of you. Now, I find this interesting, the promise that Paul made to them. I believe it was a promise of God to them, don't you? I mean, God had promised such. Do you understand that the promise was only worth anything to the people who believed it? There they are, completely stressed out. Every nerve is firing. They're so afraid that it's that that combination of fear and dread filling their soul. And then Paul says, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Now, if you don't believe Paul and just go on worrying as before, that promise does you no good. But if you were to believe it, it would mean everything to you. This is how it is with the promises of God in our life. He makes us promises. He gives us gifts. He displays his loving care and goodness and grace towards us. But I'll be very honest with you. It doesn't do you a bit of good unless you believe it and embrace it by faith. Years ago, for a few summers, we would take trips whitewater rafting with our children. This is the closest I've really come to rough seas, whitewater rafting on the South Fork of the American River. It was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed these times. And one particular time I was there, and if I remember right, I was there with at least a couple of my sons. I, there were my sons there, and I can't remember if our daughter was with us, but I do remember very clearly it was Nathan and Jonathan there with me in the raft, and we we're making our way down. And we had the best captain of our ship of all, the, the Pastor Joe, because it was a church that ran these men. It was just great. He knew exactly how to shoot through the rapids. He knew exactly how to turn the boat around and to tell this side to paddle and that side to paddle. And it was tremendous. There were times when it was scary. You'd really be going down some rapids and, you know, it'd be dicey. And once Jonathan fell in the water and Joe just picked him right up and brought him into the boat. And it was a great time, but at times a little bit scary. Well, there was one young boy in our boat. I can't even remember his name because it was him and his mom. Every time it started to get a little bit rough on the river, he would curl up in a little ball on the floor of the uh, boat and just sort of moan and wail. And there we were all just, yahoo, you know, isn't this great? And this poor little guy, there he is moaning and, and, you know, just having a miserable time of it on the bottom of the boat there. And this is what I thought afterwards. I thought, you know what? He was just as safe in that boat as we were. We had a good captain. We just trusted our captain. Joe's not going to let anything bad happen to us. He knows what he's doing. He's been down this river a hundred times before. And probably literally a hundred times before he had been down that river. We don't have a thing to worry about. And we enjoyed it. He was miserable. Why? Because we trusted our captain. He, for whatever reason, he didn't. Now, we all got to the destination safely, but we enjoyed it and he was miserable. It's the same thing with these people on the shipwreck. They were all going to be okay. It was God's promise to them. But if they would have trusted the promise of God They would have gained some encouragement, some strength. They could have enjoyed the ride. I don't think anybody enjoys a shipwreck, but they could have enjoyed it more than they did. What going on now? Verse 35. When he had said these things, 
He took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Does that suggest anything to the people in this room? Doesn't it sound like Paul is leading them in communion in the Lord's table? And I wonder if they even knew it. I wonder if Paul said it like this. And as you're eating, let me say something about who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. Can't you just imagine Paul saying that in that context? And maybe for some of the people, they didn't really get it. But for Paul and for those who believe, we know at least there were two other believers on that ship, Luke and Aristarchus. And who knows how many of them Paul led to the Lord. you got to figure that's a pretty fertile ground for evangelism when you're two weeks on a miserable ship. Yes, whatever, Paul. Yes, I believe. I believe. Paul leads them in communion, or at least it seems like it. That's the feel of it there from verse 35. It will be like this. I'm leading you. I'm going to take bread. I'm giving thanks in the presence of all. He broke it. And then it says, verse 36, then they were all encouraged. And they also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. The last of the cargo, maybe just what they were keeping for their own supplies, for their own nourishment. Forget it, no reason to keep that anymore. Shore is here. Jettison everything. Everything's off the boat. Now verse 39. When it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. You can just picture all this in your mind. There it is. There's a beach. It looks like sand. Let's run for it. Cut loose the anchors. Put up the sail. Let's do whatever we can to run it aground because it looks like some sandy ground. And that's exactly what they did. Now, verse 39 also tells us that they didn't recognize the land. They didn't know where they were landing. But we know, and they learned a little bit later, it's actually they came to an island called Malta. The place where the ship came aground is now called St. Paul's Bay. Now, I want you to notice something. I I know you can't see it all that well on the map that's on the PowerPoint. But what they did was they just ran free. And who knows how many loop-de-loops on the little line I make on the PowerPoint map there. It looks like a straight line. Friends, it might not have been a straight line at all. They might have been running quite a few loop-de-loops there going who knows where in the Mediterranean Sea. They drove blind for two weeks. And then they came to the island of Malta. And what you need to understand is the island of Malta is just this little island in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. They had no hand on the rudder, but they landed at exactly the right place. Matter of fact, if they would have swept by Malta, which was entirely reasonable, there would have been another 200 miles to go on the Mediterranean until they would have hit the Tunisian coast. And nobody would have expected the ship or the people to last that long. And so they hit this little speck in the middle of the Mediterranean because even though there was not a single human hand on that rudder, can't you see God steering the ship exactly where he wanted it to go so that it would come to the island of Malta? So verse 41, But striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. You can just picture this. You can almost feel it. 
The ship's rushing towards shore, and then all of a sudden there's a tremendous collision as it implants its front, its prow, right there into the sand. And so that's stuck firmly into the sand. But what happens to the back of the boat? Well, those waves, that stormy condition that had lasted for weeks, it suddenly didn't turn off so that they could have an easy exit from the boat. No, the waves are crashing on the stern of the ship, the back of the ship, and it's breaking it apart. And everybody understands it's now or never. We have to get off in this wind, in this storm, in this driving rain, and hope we make it to shore. Verse 42. (laughs) I love verse 42. If it wasn't bad enough, verse 42. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. You know, just when you think it's as bad as it could be, they're all wondering, will we ever survive? And the soldiers are wondering, will we ever be able to kill them all? Now, there were 276 passengers on the ship. Not all of them were prisoners. We don't know how many of them were prisoners. In my mind, I'm thinking, and this is just a guess, I'm thinking 20, 30 of them were prisoners. I really don't know. It could have been more. But let's just say you had 20, 30 prisoners on the ship and the soldiers are thinking, we have to kill them because if we don't kill them, they're going to escape. And if they escape, the penalty that they deserved goes upon our head. You see, most of those prisoners, not like Paul, most of those prisoners were going toward their execution. They were going to be marched into Rome and at the Colosseum or a similar arena, they were going to face the gladiators or the wild beasts and they would be publicly executed. That's the whole reason why they were going to Rome. Now, since those prisoners were destined to death, if by some reason they should escape, that same penalty would come upon the soldiers who were supposed to be guarding them. So the soldiers very logically felt it's either them or us. I'd rather have them dead than me dead. So let's kill them all. But look at what happens here in verse 43. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, I love that, kept them from their purpose and commanded those who could swim should jump overboard first and go to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. They all got there. Isn't it wonderful the favor that God gave Paul in the eyes of the centurion? And that favor kept Paul and all of the prisoners in life. And it was in fulfillment of what God had said to Paul that God has granted all those who sail with you. Friends, God's word never fails. He made that promise. And in the most unlikely of circumstances, that promise was fulfilled and they made it to shore. Now, one thing I do have to add about verse 44. Verse 44 is famous among, well, at least California Bible students because it's the surfing verse in the Bible. (laughs) At least in the New King James Version, this is what it says. It says, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, they came to shore. Well, if they came to shore on boards, (laughs) it could have been that Paul surfed to the shore of Malta. Now, it could have been that they were so weakened by the storm that all they could do was bodyboard in. But there could have been some stand-up paddlers among them. I don't know. But if you want a biblical justification of surfing, here it is. Make a note of it in your Bible. Acts chapter 27, verse 44. Now, 
We're going to come a few verses into chapter 28. Let's take a look at it. Now, when they had escaped, then they found out that the island was called Malta. By the way, the name Malta means refuge. Isn't that a great title for this island? They came to Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. You have to put yourself in this mentality. They were in a terrible storm that lasted weeks, and so the waves were pounding, the wind was blowing, it was cold, it was wet, it was miserable. They were so happy to be on shore. By the way, can you just imagine how happy you would be to be on shore after two weeks of that? You would be kissing the beach on the sand. Just, just, you couldn't believe how fortunate you were, how blessed you were to be saved. And not only that, but it says there in verse 2 that the natives made them all welcome. They built a fire. They welcomed. Please come. We can tell you're miserable. We can tell you've been through a great ordeal. Let us comfort you. Let us bless you. Now look at verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire... By the way, isn't it wonderful to see the great Apostle Paul helping in a very practical way? He doesn't just find some kind of ancient Maltese equivalent of an easy chair and say, Luke and Aristarchus, why don't you guys get to work? No, he's gathering sticks. They need wood for the fire. We're cold. Let's do it. So Paul says, well, I'm worthy of this work. I'll just go and start doing it. Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. Verse 3 a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Thank you very much. <laughs> Can't you just imagine Paul thinking, when's it going to end? <laughs> and you know, it's a logical question for us to ask sometimes. You know, somebody spoke to me after last week, this great encouragement that Paul gave to the, to the people on board the ship and how they should believe God. And people ask the difficult questions. Well, what if God doesn't rescue you? What if the ship crashes and lives are lost? Ladies and gentlemen, God shows so many wonderful examples of his grace and his deliverance to us. He does it time and time again. But let's face it. Every one of us has an appointed time that we're going to pass from this world to the next. The story doesn't always end with a miraculous deliverance. But here's the lesson, is that even when God preserves us through a trial, instead of delivering us from a trial, His deliverance is still real. Don't despair. Don't think that it always has to make sense, that it always has to be something that wins in this obvious victory. Sometimes God's greatest work is by being faithful to us to the very end, no matter what our suffering. We think about when somebody is afflicted with some kind of sickness. We pray for them to be healed. We believe that God can heal them. We believe that God wants to heal them. But if God chooses not to heal them, then he's still God and he's still good. We understand that God works in many different ways. And I wouldn't blame the Apostle Paul for thinking, okay, Lord, what's this now? A, a, a snake on my... Now, Paul had an advantage here. Where did God tell him he was going to end up? Rome. God did not tell him, you'll make it to Malta. And after that, who knows? No, he was going all the way to Rome. Paul could look at that snake fastened on his arm and he could simply say, 
I'm not in Rome yet. Forget it. You can't do anything to me. So what did he do? Well, it says, So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. So you get the picture. The, the viper comes out of the wood pile and it grabs onto Paul's arm or actually on his hand and they see it and they exclaim, what? This is it. This is exactly the man must be a murderer. He must deserve this. Justice will not allow this man to live. That's what it is in verse 4. Now, they believed, the natives of Malta, they believed that justice finally caught up with the prisoner. And justice here is actually a reference to the Greek goddess of justice, Diaki. The, the, the natives, believing that Paul was a prisoner, they had assumed that he had committed some great crime and the goddess of justice would not allow Paul to go unpunished. And so what happens here? They're convinced that he's a murderer and that he's going to die. Well, what happened? You saw it there starting at verse 5. But he shook off the creature in the fire and suffered no harm. I love this. Paul didn't scream, Why, God, I can't take this anymore. Can't you see that I'm serving you? Paul didn't took a look around the people at the fire and say, You know what, why didn't you guys collect the wood? If you would have collected the wood, maybe this would have been you and not me. Instead, almost calmly, he seems to shake the snake off of his hand into the fire and he suffered no harm. Verse 5, however, he shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm. However, they were expecting he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their mind and said that he was a god. (laughs) Isn't that just perfectly human nature? It runs hot and cold, doesn't it? First, you're a murderer and you deserve to die. Justice will not allow you to live. Next, you're a god. (laughs) Neither one of them were true. But Paul understood God has this purpose for my life and it cannot be derailed. I can take God's past faithfulness as a promise for his future blessing and protection. But you know, actually, that there's a great picture here for us to see. When that snake bit Paul on the hand and the native said, justice will not allow him to live. They believed that justice had a claim against Paul because he must have been a murderer. Do you know something about the life of Paul before he was converted by the power of Jesus Christ? I've got news for you. He was a murderer. He really was. And assuming Paul could understand what these natives from Malta were saying, it would have registered in his mind, they're right. I am a murderer. Justice, raw justice, might require that I die. But then Paul remembered, justice has been satisfied for me at the cross. Anything that should be poured about upon me by the justice of God. Instead, it was put upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. And isn't that the great message that Paul preached? The preaching of that message is the reason why he got in trouble all over the Roman Empire. 
Because he went around telling people that divine justice can be satisfied on their behalf if they'll put their trust in who Jesus is and what he did for them on the cross. And so if the snake bites you, it's as if the snake has no more venom. All the poison is gone. Do you know why? Because all the poison was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. There's no more poison in that snake of divine justice. Oh, it might bite you. Oh, you'll see it. You'll have to shake it off into the fire. Oh, other people may say, oh, well, he deserves it, on and on. No, divine justice has been satisfied. That's a toothless snake. And even if it has teeth, it has no venom because all the venom that should have gone to you by divine justice was poured out upon Jesus. And here's the point. You and I, we can't survive that snake bite, can we? But Jesus could. Jesus could allow that serpent, so to speak, to strike him on the cross. And not only did he survive, he resurrected in glory, having finished it and having paid the price. Well, they looked at this and they looked at the triumphant boss of Paul and they said he was a God. They were wrong on both counts. He, he, well, he was a murderer, but that's not why the snake struck him. And again, he wasn't a God. But we saw this fulfilling the promise. God fulfilled his promise to Paul, first of all, in the providence of surviving the shipwreck. That's a big deal. They made it through. They were safe on land right now on the island of Malta. But here's the other place. God showed his goodness in having his justice satisfied. It had no more claim on Paul. Is that true for you? Can you say that God's justice is satisfied for you? If that serpent of God's justice were to strike you, is there any more venom? Is there any more poison in it? The only way to leach the poison out of that serpent is to trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. Then his payment for sin counts unto you. But if you don't believe it, if you don't put your trust in it, the provision is there, but you don't take any uh, a credit for it. You don't take any account of it. It's not given unto you. It just happened. It happened for other people. But you can embrace it by faith, and it can happen for you. You know, on that ship, they took communion, or at least it seemed like it. Paul broke bread, and it seemed to be a sacred moment on that ship. Isn't it wonderful that this Sunday we're going to do the same thing? In a few minutes, Pastor Troy is going to come on up and he's going to lead us together in taking that broken bread and that cup together. But, but I need to say, this needs to be a morning for you where either for the first time or as a renewal, you understand that Jesus took the poison for you. You're going to drink that cup. But I want you to only drink it if you can understand that Jesus drank a poison cup for you and he could bear it so that the cup you drink right now could be sweet. That's what Jesus did for you. So I'm calling you right here this morning, either to do it for the first time with your trust in Jesus or to renew it all over again by putting your focus on who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. So the divine justice can be satisfied. Just shake that snake off into the fire. Father, that's our prayer for this morning.
we see the way that you preserve servants like the Apostle Paul. Lord, we've seen you preserve us many times. We see that this life of godliness, of following you, it doesn't insulate us from all trouble, not by any means. But it means that even in the midst of the storm, you're right there in the midst fulfilling your promise. So God, I pray that you would genuinely prepare hearts to come and to receive communion, Lord. Holy communion at your table. And I pray in particular, Lord, for those who need to trust you for the first time for who you are and what they've done in their life. Lord, won't you speak to their hearts right now to put their trust in you and to make this the best communion service they've ever experienced. Thank you, Jesus, that you could bear that poison. And now we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.